Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello everyone, my name is Megan O'Hare and I'm a research associate working for the NIHR at UCL. Today we're going to talk about publishing and we've got a quick plug from uh, PLOS One today. So, as the ageing population continues to grow, the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is expected to rise. The disease incurs enormous economic and social costs and represents a major public health burden. The high social impact of Alzheimer's disease is partly due to the fact that no known cure exists, which I think we're all very well aware of. With existing treatments being largely palliative, the impact of Alzheimer's disease may be lessened by timely diagnosis, allowing access to care pathways and enabling planning for advanced care. Whilst early diagnosis of the disease remains challenging, a number of research approaches have shown promise in addressing this critical need. Current diagnostics of Alzheimer's disease include clinical evaluation and psychological tests. In addition, research has shown the value of examining biological markers, such as structural changes within the brain measured by MRI, detecting amyloid in tau with PET scans, and measuring a variety of proteins, including amyloid in blood plasma. Further work in this area is required to establish reliable diagnostics that can be easily implemented into routine clinical practice. The ability to diagnose Alzheimer's disease at its early stages is likely a prerequisite for the successful implementation of novel disease-modifying treatments. To date, no such therapies exist. Whilst reversing the damage caused by the disease will likely prove difficult, there is hope that novel treatments will be able to prevent or retard the progression of symptoms and deterioration in quality of life that is characteristic of the disease. Research is required at all stages of the pipeline to identify potential drug targets and novel treatments for the disease. Bringing earlier diagnoses and effective treatments to patients will require collaboration of researchers across multiple fields. The broad scope of PLOS One facilitates publication of the interdisciplinary research necessary to address the high social impact of this disease. And this is where I'd like to introduce George Vowsden, the Associate Editor at PLOS, who will talk a little bit about the actual call that him and Alzheimer's Research UK are putting together, which is sort of one of the main reasons we've got together today, but we will also talk more generally about publishing. But if you could just tell us a little bit about the call quickly. Uh, yeah, so I mean, obviously, you we've just heard the scope of the call for papers. Uh, so I think that's probably that probably summarises the sort of research that we're really hoping to attract. Um, and also the importance of why we need research in this area. Uh, so once the if you submit your paper to the call for papers, uh, the plan will be that those papers have the opportunity to be included in the collection. So what a collection is, is it's essentially a group of papers on a particular topic. So in this case, this is going to be entitled The Early Diagnosis and Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease. And the plan is to bring all those different stages of the research pipeline together. So you can have early in silico or in vitro analysis of potential drug targets, all the way through to clinical trials in one location, all on the PLOS website. Uh, So the collection is curated by four guest editors. Uh, So we have four guest editors uh, that are experts within the field uh, along different stages of those pipelines. Uh, So, for example, one of our guest editors is Michael Viner. So he is the principal investigator on the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. Uh, And this is a very large cohort study uh, in the United States of America 
that includes multiple um, institutions and it's, it's going across the whole country. And this includes individuals with uh, healthy individuals, uh, individuals with mild cognitive impairment and individuals with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and it's recording various neuroimaging and blood markers uh, that could be potentially used to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. Um, as I say, so we have guest editors across the different spectrum. So you also have someone called Yona Levites, uh, who works on preclinical work, uh, looking at novel immunotherapeutic uh, treatments for Alzheimer's disease in animal models. Um, also have Roberta Brinton, who is another guest editor, and she is she works on both preclinical and clinical work. Uh, and some of her work includes looking at the reasons why Alzheimer's disease is more prevalent in females than males. And then our final guest editor, who will be uh, deciding which papers go in this collection, is Yusi Toka, uh, who works on machine learning uh, and looking at how we can use machine learning approaches to try and improve the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Thank you. That sounds really good. Um, ARUK is working to promote this call to papers. Rui, I wondered, why do you think this is so important? It's really interesting that we're getting into this new age of earlier diagnosis because, as we know, a lot of the clinical trials into Alzheimer's disease in the past have failed, and it's probably because um, it's we're intervening too late in the disease process. So this is one of the things that research has shown us, is that by the time we're intervening in clinical trials, the damage to the brain has been too extensive, and so there's nothing that can be done because it can't be um, regenerated, which means that we're trying to then find people with the disease earlier before this all this damage has occurred to the brain so we can intervene and stop the progression of the disease. Uh, and so it's really interesting that PLOS One is now creating this because it can stimulate research into this area, which is what we need. We need to understand more. We need to investigate more to understand when, when is the best time to intervene and what is the best intervention in the clinical trials. Okay. So maybe moving away from this actual call for papers, we could talk a little bit about open science and what is open science and why it's important. Maybe, George, you could... Yeah, so, I mean, open science is a very broad sort of, very broad topic uh, and really could include anything from different stages within the research sort of uh, process. Uh, so I'll just sort of talk about a few examples. Uh, one thing you could do is you could pre-register your study. Uh, so what this means is that before you start data collection, uh, you might say, right, I'm going to do this study and I'm going to have outcomes of A and B. Uh, and the idea is, is that you make that openly available so that everyone is aware before you start your study what it is exactly you're going to be looking at. So then you can perform your study and then the idea would be that you report on outcomes A and B. What that stops is people uh, looking post hoc and seeing that actually outcome C was really interesting and ignoring, say, let's say that outcome A and B you don't get the response you're expecting but in outcome C you do it'd be very easy to rephrase your whole submission to say, oh, I'm re I was, we were always really interested in outcome C. Um, so this is an idea that's been around in clinical trials for some time, uh, and any clinical trials that are carried out should always be registered. Uh, but we're also seeing that this is coming in, this is sort of gaining speed in uh, non-clinical trials and sort of preclinical research. Um, so I guess that's, that's one thing. Um, I just wondered on that, sorry... Um so you said with clinical trials that's been around for a while. Yes. Is that also, because we talk a lot about patient and public involvement, 
and being involved in actually sort of setting up the clinical trials. So would that be a point where, you know, you're saying, I'm doing this trial, we're looking for outcomes A and B, and you'd get PPI involved and they would say, well, that's not relevant to us. And if that's true, do you, would that translate into non-clinical so research PPI. as well? PPI, uh, patient and public involvement. So maybe, Rui, you know a bit more about this. Yeah, so this would be, from what George is saying, it would be the perfect opportunity to involve people and understand, are these the outcomes that you are looking for? Are these the preferred outcomes? Because one of the problems with research in the past is that, and I was a researcher, so I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, is we're trying to figure out what people would want in their lives, what sort of treatment, what sort of outcomes would they prefer, when actually the easiest thing is to just go to people and ask them, is this the outcome that you prefer? So then we can work together towards something rather than researchers working independently from people and maybe coming up with something that is not fit for purpose. So this would be the perfect opportunity to kind of go, these are the outcomes for the, cl the current clinical trials. Do you agree? Do you have any suggestions? Would you prefer something else? And then it would save time and resources kind of adjusting that, um, that expectation mm -hmm. in the work. And how does a journal fit into any kind of open science like that? Do you, because the, the cynic in me says you, you know, are publishing, you want to publish and sell publications mm -hmm. so you want the best research and you don't necessarily mind if it means that they've not followed the protocol of saying we wanted a and b if c actually was the you know the headline grabbing result so how would a journal fit into that uh well i think that the best research is reproducible research mm -hmm. uh and i think that pre-declaring your outcomes as to what's expected uh, and being completely open and honest as to what you expected to happen and why you did that uh, means that you can... It means that everything is a lot more reduce, re reproducible. Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, you might be familiar with the idea of P equals 0 0.05. So, so this is the idea that if it's less than 0 0.05, then it's significant. Um, which is uh, debatable, but I guess that's a, a different topic. Um, but what that means in, in actuality is that 1 in 20 results will occur by chance if you accept that, that p equals 0 0.05. So if you, had a man, if you had a study that had, 20, that had 20 outcomes, one of those would cause a significant result purely by chance. Mm -hmm. So in, if, you know, even, that, was, that would be the case even if you had completely random data. Obviously, as a journal, we don't want to be publishing results that aren't reproducible in that case because that re that result would have occurred purely by chance yeah. um, and I think as a journal we all want our work to have impact uh, and we want it to affect and progress the field uh, and making sure that the work is reproducible really ensures, ensures that. Mm -hmm. I want to jump in there from something that George said he talked about being open and transparent and I think that's one of the key things of open science even though it's such a broad term the main elements of open science is being able to be open and transparent, uh, sharing and working together. I always, when I think about open science, I always think back to my times in school, the first years of school, when we had group projects. And this is, this is before competition and politics and mind games all started in school. But the first, the so very first like years, four. the innocent, yeah, exactly, <laughs> four, five, six, the innocent years of school, when everyone is in a classroom working together in projects, everyone in different groups, but everyone is working together. I remember making wooden boxes or paintings or something, and I would work uh, 
with my group and then go to other groups and ask, have you managed to finish the books? How did you overcome this particular step? How did you do that? I was very eloquent when I was four. Um, <laughs> how did you do this? How did you finish your painting? Do you have materials because we've ran out of this? And everyone in the classroom was working together because they knew as soon as we finish this, we get to go outside and play. So if we work together, we finish earlier. And that's for me is the idea of open science is people around the world working on their wooden boxes and sharing everything that they're doing, working together. And that is the way that we can progress and advance science faster. Yeah, I think something you said earlier about it being open, I think that, and you were saying you used to be a researcher, me too, it can feel like you're quite closed doors when you're doing your own project because there is the the pressure to publish, I'm not blaming George in any way, <laughs> but that pressure to publish with your name on, so it doesn't matter how many people helped you paint your wooden yeah. box, at the end of the day you want your name on it in George's journal to get your next grant, because exactly. that's how it's set up, and you know, it would be better if we could all paint together. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is one of the barriers to open science, is the fact that, especially in biological sciences, your career progression depends on high-impact mm -hmm. publications. It depends on finding those breakthroughs, those amazing results that then give you that publication and allow you to progress your career. But if we start looking at other ways of recognizing scientific contribution, being sharing data sets, sharing negative results. So for example, I did a PhD. For three years of my PhD, I had negative results. I had a couple of months of positive things that allowed me to publish, but those three years is work that is useful to other people. It's yeah. useful to know this didn't work because of this. Mm. And, and this is one of the things that we can value in research to kind of go around those high impact publications necessary for career progression. Yeah, the neg sharing negative results comes up a lot. I know that some journals do. Once you publish, you then also give them basically your whole data set to PLOS One. Operate a similar thing so that then the data is in the public space and you can almost go in and have a look and... Yes, exactly. Uh, so, so PLOS is completely supportive of open data sharing. Uh, and as of 2014, uh, every paper that PLOS publishes, so not just PLOS One, but all of the other journals that PLOS publishes, all have to include a data availability statement. And what that is, is it indicates how the data that underlying the manuscript can be found. Um, so yeah, I think that sharing your data is critical in open science. Uh, it enables reproducibility, it enables other people to look at your data. If someone's doing a similar study, it allows them to compare your their data and your data to ensure that you're, you're looking at the same thing. But not in a competitive way, you hope. Because that's always the problem, is that you go to a conference and people don't show their data and their poster because they don't want the competitor to see it. And then, do you see what I mean? So have you found people have been wary of sharing? I mean, obviously they've published, so yeah. that bit's out there, but you don't know what they had planned for the subsection of their data. So have you found people wary to share? or? Um, very rarely. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people are aware that I think sharing your data maximises the impact of your work. Mm -hmm. I think that's that. I mean, we talked about making an impact and making a change. I think that's what we want as a scientist. Uh, and I think that as soon as you share your data, you increase you increase the use of that data that you've made. No longer is it just held within a manuscript. It's it's reusable. It can be used to forward, you know, to to advance the future in Alzheimer's disease, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and I think that's critical. You know. I mean, people like to collect citations, and obviously, your your work is going to be cited if that data is used to support any further any further publications. Yeah. 
Um, do obviously ARUK encourage open science? What sort of do you have any other ways you do it apart from collaborating with journals? Or so we <clears throat> currently have a policy on open access and data sharing to kind of encourage our researchers to make sure that their publications are open access and available immediately, uh, to make sure that they share the data sets for the reasons that George was just talking about. Uh, and we are constantly trying to evolve and look for the wider environment, what's happening to kind of adjust and support our research researchers, because we know that it's not easy to find open access journals and to go around these high impact publications um, system. Uh, but we just try to tell them, have an open dialogue with us. Tell us what the costs are for open access that you um, envision, and we can include that in the grants. And in terms of open uh, data sharing, we can tell you all about the open platforms that exist out there, what's the best route to, for you to publish your research, be it the main findings or the negative results, or just talk to us. And we are funders are usually the best source of information mm -hmm. for those things, and we can tell them about all the amazing avenues for open science. <laughs> so there's open science, which is, you talked about, about sort of the pre, way before you've even got any data. There's that bit of open science. Then there's also open access journals. So maybe you could tell us what that is. I mean, I'm sure our listeners know, but sometimes it's good to hear the dictionary definition. Uh, yeah, definitely. So I could, what I'll do is I'll just sort of talk about the two different types of journals that, that exist. Um, so if you went back sort of maybe 20 or 25 years, uh, you would find that in order to read any journal, you would always need a subscription, uh, or you might have to pay to access a particular article. Um, and that, that was the way for a long time, uh, but fairly recently, I guess sort of over the past 15 sort of years, uh, there's been a movement towards open access. And the difference is that rather than needing a subscription, you can just go to the journal website and it's free. Uh, and, and that is an open access publication. Uh, there's no subscriptions, anyone can read it. Uh, it's openly available to all. Um, so when we talk about open access publications, there's no subscription fee, there's no fee to read it whatsoever. And um, of the journals out there, what percentage do you think are open access now? <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't a pre-prepared question, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. I, I mean, I couldn't tell you. I think there's, there's everything is moving towards an open access mm. sort of way. Um, and there are a few different reasons for that. Um, Do you think the internet's the biggest reason? It's, it's, de it's definitely a big factor. Mm. Um, I think there's a general awareness that, particularly for publicly funded research, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem correct that if the taxpayer is paying for research to be conducted, uh, that the taxpayer isn't able to access that research. Yes, I read a very scathing Guardian article by George Monbiot. I don't know how you say his name okay. about that. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think that's that's one of the main drivers is there's just an increasing awareness that we need to make sure that science is openly available to everyone, including, I mean, one of the people that are often worst hit by these subscriptions are people in low and middle income countries. Mm -hmm. Because whilst individuals in sort of US and Northern Europe might often their library their libraries might have enough money might have enough money to pay for these very expensive subscriptions. Uh, that isn't in the case in these lower and lower and middle income countries. Uh, where often they don't have any subscription at all, so they're relying on open access. Because mm -hmm. um, you said ARUK would help um, sort of hook you up with journals or, you know, pay for the to, for it to be published, because that's the other hurdle in a way, isn't it? You can have an open access journal at one end, but you still have to pay to put your 
publicate, you know, your article in it. So you said the ARUK sort so of... That's why I was saying that we encourage researchers to talk to us and be open about what are their plans for open access. Mm. Because um, I did some pro projections a while ago and it wouldn't be possible to cover the cost of all publications if they were all open access uh, at the current rates. It okay. would be um, uh, tremendously expensive. Are more expensive than non-open access or is there's no difference? So there are the article processing charges for open access publications, which mm -hmm. are quite high, yeah. um, because obviously they have to make up for those for the fact that no one needs to subscribe yes. to to get access to these publications. And so what we do is talk to researchers and say, what are your plans for publications in open access? Talk to us so we can have a look and include that in the grant proposals. We can't say from the beginning we're going to cover costs for all publications mm. open access at the moment. That's how I was saying we're trying to evolve our policy and kind of adapt to the environment and see what can we do, what is the best use of our money, and what is the best way that we can support researchers. And this sort of comes into maybe a question a little bit further along about is publishing in the journal the only way to communicate your work? Is that also something you look at? So, sorry, George, I mean, publishing in, in journals is great, but are there other ways that, you know, are, are cheaper or, as, or more cost effective? <laughs> as George was saying, um, we are seeing this kind of change into open access, which means that we have an immense uh, array of platforms and repositories and everything possibly uh, that you can uh, imagine to publish your research. So you can use the um, university repositories, for example, where you can share data sets and, and uh, results. The only problem being that usually those repositories are closed within the university, which means you are sharing, but just within that small environment. So the best idea is to, yes, you can start there, but go for the freely available, widely acknowledged uh, platforms. So for example, AMRC now has an open platform where you can publish even negative results or your own uh, papers. And so just have a look and talk to us, as I said, because we know um, lists of open platforms that you can use. So uh, along the open access journals thing, I, I think there's something called Plan S. There is. If, can we just go back to the sure, sure, to the to yeah. the question on whether a journal is the only way oh, to? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so you know, I'm going to say no. I know I, I work for a publisher, yeah. um, but but certainly the answer is no. It's not the only way to share your work. Um, so recently, uh, there's a movement towards preprints. Oh uh, yeah. Um, and what this is, this is a, a scientific manuscript that's made available before uh, it's gone through peer review. Uh, so this is an idea that's been going on for quite a long time in the physical sciences. Uh, so Archive um, is a website where individuals in sort of maths and physics areas have been uploading their non-peer-reviewed manuscripts for a long time. Uh, and recently we've seen this movement towards uh, individuals within the biomedical fields also doing this. Um, so this has led to the growth of BioArchive. Uh, and there's about just over 30,000 preprints that are available on BioArchive to read. Um, so this is free to upload and it's free to read. Uh, so it's completely open, but critically it's not peer-reviewed. Mm. And uh, then it's not cited, so you don't necessarily get the same sort of... Visibility. Yeah, or, you know, your tractable measure of success or whatever. Uh, I mean, it can be cited. Okay. Uh, you, you can. So, so when you have your preprint, you do get a DOI, which is a digital object identifier, um, and it is it is possible to cite them. Um, the way that most people are seeing preprints at the moment, uh, and maybe there will be a movement away from this, um, but at the moment, it's often a way to share your work as early as possible. Mm -hmm. 
so for example, when you submit to PLOS One, uh, when you submit, you can have the opportunity to put that on BioArchive straight away. Okay. Uh, so that means that your work is out there from from day one, uh, and you can tell the world about it, but with the caveat that it's not peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the peer review process will come, and then sort of nine months, a year later, you'll have the final publication. Okay, so, so can I ask, sorry to interrupt no, no, Megan. Okay. So what happens if, so the peer review process will happen in PLOS One, yes. and you will have your non-peer-reviewed version of the manuscript in yep. the bioarchive, which means that you can just replace, once you've done the peer review, you can just replace the versions, and then the bioarchive will have the peer-reviewed version, let's put it that way. Uh, not quite. Um, so what bioarchive will do uh, so once the version is published, BioArchive will provide a link to the to that published version. Okay. So so BioArchive okay. always has the sort of pre peer review version, yep. uh, but they will link to the published version. And part of the reasons for that, uh, it's not so much a problem with PLOS, but is for other journals uh, where that work might be behind a paywall. Yeah. That work will be copyrighted and it won't be able to be shared. Um, okay. So Plan S. Plan S, uh, yes. Um, so this is a sort of way that uh, a lot of funders within Europe uh, are beginning to promote open access. Um, so this was launched uh, just over a year ago uh, with the support of the European Commission. Um, and this is a plan that's backed by various funders, uh, including the Wellcome Trust and the ERC. Uh, and the sort of the, the principal notion is that any work funded by any of these Plan S organisations uh, will be made immediately available open access. Now, this is sort of, it's, you know, it's, it's excellent, but that in itself isn't a hugely new idea. Uh, I think the research councils in the UK have required for a long time that their work is made open access. Yeah. Um, But there are a few sort of critical caveats that uh, some of the reasons why this has caused a bit of controversy, um, but it's why it's a very progressive idea. Um, So one of the key differences is that they won't pay the APC, so the article processing charge that you normally have to pay when you publish in an open access journal. They won't pay that for hybrid journals. So a hybrid journal, so we talked a little bit earlier about open access journals. So this is where all the content is made openly available. And we talked about subscription-based journals as well, and this is where all the all the work is behind a paywall. But what Plan S is saying is that they won't fund the APCs of research in hybrid journals. So this is where typically most of the content is only available by, via subscription, but researchers can pay an additional fee in order to make their work available open access. Right, OK. Is that to stop? basically just putting money in the publisher's pocket? That's pretty much exactly it, yeah. Right, okay. um, so, so the problem with these hybrid journals is that you get sort of a double dipping mm. because you have the librarians which are paying for the subscription fees for this journal, so the publishers are making lots of money that way, but then you also have the researchers paying these article processing charges, so they're also getting lots of money that way. Mm. So the university is paying twice? The university is paying twice, mm. exactly. Um so Plan S is against these hybrid publishers um, and on the whole they, they won't support um, publication fees in those journals. The, the only sort of slight caveat is if that journal is moving towards making itself fully open access, it may be permissible. 
Um, and they've also said that they may be able to provide funds for journals to make that transition between the hybrid to the fully open access journals. Mm-hmm. And part of the reasoning behind providing that funding is that a lot of these hybrid journals are society-run journals. Um, so a lot of the profits that are being made at the moment are going back into a society. Mm-hmm. So the funders want to make sure that, that work is open, uh, but also those societies are still able to make money. I see. This is actually a really big um, problem at the moment because Plan S was meant to start this year. However, the funders decided that there was more time needed to discuss with publishers what the best way is for this transition because the plan is very ambitious, as George mentioned, um, and there's a lot of change that it needs to happen. And it couldn't happen in the initial time frame that was uh, predicted for Plan S. So now you have the funders and the publishers kind of in this dialogue trying to see what is the best way forward. How can we do this together mm. to kind of move into this open access world by 2021? By now, I think 2021, 2022. Uh, what can we do together to get there? And it's, it's not a simple case of this is probably my naivety, but that a lot of the subscription journals are still physically printing journals or is that a really small cost and most aren't actually I don't know whether you know a lot of them are also just all online now and is that correlated with them being mainly open access uh I don't know is the short answer (laughs) uh so plus one we only publish online uh Mm -hmm. so the sort of world of paper publishing is is not something I'm too familiar with (laughs) but journals Um, still do physically print for someone so yeah back then in the time when internet showed up a lot of people just thought oh the publishers are just gonna go bankrupt because everything is now internet based and Mm. they can charge for um, printing and etc but the publishers done an an amazing job at turning from print from paper based to internet but still have the same cost (laughs) (laughs) still have these these systems in place and this um process to kind of help publishers show their work, not just in print, but now internet-based. So I think most journals now are internet-based. Some might still also print stuff, but all of them will be Mm. uh, internet-based. So I don't think that affects the article processing charges. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they justify those charges as we need to, we will do the best work that we can to show your, to showcase your work to the world, basically. Mm Um, I think we're sort of coming to the end now. Have you got anything, any other points you'd like to make about the world of publishing? Either of you? Do you like to start, George? Do you want me to start? Um, I mean, I guess the, the main thing I would just impress upon people is to, to make their work as open as possible. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I sort of talked about it a few times, but as scientists, we all want to make the maximum impact that we possibly can. Uh, and I think that sharing as much as you can about your work, you know, some of the things that we've talked about of pre-registering your work, making your work open access, sharing your data. Uh, we haven't talked about sharing code, uh, but that's another thing that I, that I think is, is critical uh, to enable, as I say, just the, the maximum impact and the maximum reproducibility of your work, which is, as a scientist, what you should thrive for. Yeah, good. <laughs> I think to kind of achieve that sort of naive, innocent vision that I had of open science, we still need to work a little bit on culture, because I think that's the main barrier at the moment. If we can show researchers the value of open science, of sharing openly, of working together, then you can save resources, you can progress faster, we can deliver treatments to people earlier, we can understand diseases earlier to work on prevention. 
Uh, and if we can show that and show to people also the value of open science, being involved in science, say what you think about the research that is being done, what are the outcomes that you prefer. If you get this open dialogue going and this environment of openness and sharing, then we can progress science so much faster than we're doing at the moment. Um, and I think that's the final message from me. Okay, so we've all got to paint wooden boxes together exactly. and then share them with everyone <laughs> openly. Exactly. Okay, well, great. Thank you both so much. This has been really interesting. Thank um, you. It's time to end today's podcast recording. You can visit our website to look at the profiles of our two panellists. If you have anything to add on this topic, please do post your comments in the forum or on our website. Finally, please remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes and Spotify. Thank you. A podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.